Welcome to The Problem, a Lockwood & Co. podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And this week we we're talking about part one of The Whispering Skull, which definitely has a name. The Wraiths or something? Wraith, the Wimbledon Wraiths. The Wimbledon Wraiths. I was not in our notes and I didn't have my book open because I'm a professional. <laughs> um, but back to like our usual Caitlin has weird life updates. I definitely will sound echoey this week because the trick that I pulled last week hanging blankets on the bookshelves, the empty bookshelves behind me, well, those blankets are now packed and those bookshelves now belong to a different person. Oh. So that's wonderful. And the next time we record, I'll be in a completely different space. Yay. <laughs> I feel like there's got to be like a tennis joke for Wimbledon, but that's like the only thing that I know about Wimbledon is tennis. And I thought it was in France. I don't know why. So like, <laughs> I didn't even know it was in England or if it's the same Wimbledon. I don't know. This has nothing to do with tennis, though. No, so. tennis Wimbledon is in England. Okay. Wimbledon like stadium is in London, I think. Well, near-ish, whatever. I don't, I don't know if they're one of those cities that puts their stadiums like just outside, but it's still cold. Yeah. You know, the London, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The chapter one art is the same art from what yes. we talked about last time. And I was like, aha. Yeah. So they just recycled it. That's why. Yeah, or it pre-cycled no it. No, I suspect they recycled. Yeah. Because I would presume that the ebook came out later. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to have that question answered, honestly. Yeah, it bothered me. I'm glad we're all on the same literal page. <laughs> uh, in, so. cha <laughs> in chapter one, Lucy, Lockwood, and George become trapped by a swarm of wraiths that they were not prepared for. They Oh, something that I meant to mention here at the beginning. Uh, we should see how long we can draw out these two chapters for. Yeah, like, this will be will, a 20-minute episode. It's going to be easy peasy. Will we hit an hour? <laughs> I, I don't doubt us, you know? Yeah. Uh, my first note on this opening, which is a great little bit where they're like, hey, look, there's two ghosts, you know? Um and I just wrote down, imagine reading this having not read book one. Just that like first paragraph. It's great. <laughs> you would immediately be like, I need to know more. I didn't think of it that way. He does a good job of like reintroducing the world and stuff in case it is your first book. But it is like a snappy opening. You're right. Or even just like if it had been a year since you read the first book, right? Yeah. It sort of draws you back into the world. Um, so there's a line here near the beginning where there was a rasp of Velcro as Lockwood pulled his rapier clear of his belt. Yeah. I like that line because it's a weird juxtaposition. I don't know. You, you really associate Velcro with children, I find. Mm. But having it sort of with him pulling his sword is interesting. I associate Velcro with the American space program. I was like, okay, so have we gone to space in this oh, in this timeline that's an interesting thought i, I would I, say yeah, I yes know. yeah probably we started space more than 50 years ago yeah but possibly we haven't done as much space stuff and if you got like um highly sculpted microplastics and stuff with velcro uh but the, i think the interesting thing there 
to me too, as far as the functionality of the sword, like that's really smart uh, to have Velcro instead of the usual way that a clasp holds a sword on a scabbard, mm-hmm. which is like, it'll be like a tight fit for the metal at the very like pummel of the hilt. Uh, but they're in like really extreme temperature swings all the time. And that can make your sword get stuck. Right. So I'm assuming that the scabbard has like a loose hold on the sword and the Velcro is what keeps it secure. So it's actually like really smart. That's interesting. I just, I, my mind associates Velcro with like Velcro shoes that you give kids before they can tie their own laces. Yeah. 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 Velcro pants and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So I thought it was an interesting way to just bring to mind that these are children. Yeah, you, I think you're right. Velcro coats well, and stuff. Uh, both are interesting. That, yeah, I had that feeling too of like, oh, this is like a kid thing to have Velcro on your sword. But I was like, actually, the more I think about it, the smarter this is. I guess it kind of does both, which a lot of the sort of thing, like just small little things that we get about them do. Mm-hmm. You know, like brings to mind their childhood, but also... Maybe adults could use childish stuff a little bit more in their lives, make things easier. Stroud's just such a good world builder, and it's just stuff like this that he just drops in there like it's nothing that just makes everything feel real. I'm glad we're complimenting him straight off the bat because I'm going to say some mean things later. <laughs> About uh, his the, the perfect way that Lucy interacts with women. Um, yep. Uh, I did notice right off here, too, we had a whole thing about, like, George is doing the digging. So Mm -hmm. all three of our heroes are here, unlike in the beginning of the first book, where George gets left behind. But kind of inverted from that whole thing, George is here, but he's having a hard time with his information gathering. Uh, He was misinformed. Well, we don't know that yet. And technically, they're in the right spot. They just don't. They just don't pay attention to the right thing. Yeah, they're looking for a body, that, which is why George has been digging for two hours. And the problem that's cropped up here is right there in the first line. Like you said, there's two ghosts instead of one. Mm-hmm. And they were like, George, you said there would only be one. And he's like, oh, right. I can only follow the historical record. And it said that one man was executed and buried here. So like the book told me this and that's what I believe. I think this is like actually a really important theme to kick off things here with George about like the limitations of research about like knowing things and how you know them and like experimentation and like information. All this stuff is Mm -hmm. an important part of George's journey in this book and like his limitations and shortcomings here in these early chapters while it's like kind of funny and is definitely like an inversion of what we had in the previous book. Like it is also important for his arc. Yes. And then almost right away, we start being mean to George. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I'm just glad we're starting off and, you know, the way we mean to continue. Right. Um, so that's great. Also, all of it is from Lucy and it's just peak sibling stuff, them sniping at each other this whole time. Sometimes it feels too like, it's part of her anxiety in the moment to like, Oh yeah, definitely. Especially yeah. here. Yeah. 
some of them absolutely go too far or don't feel that way at all. But here it does sort of feel like she's just taking out her anxiety on George. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, you could pick a different punching bag every now and then. (laughs) Right. And she also doesn't say a lot of the things out loud. It's like that's true in her head. But it is still savage. And it's said to us. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah, it's pretty bad. But in a in a mostly fun way, like it is funny. Mm-hmm. So um eventually Lucy points out that hers is moving closer because there's sort of one ghost on her side of the yarn circle and one on Lockwood's side. And then we just have this classic exchange, classic Lockwood, where he's like, Don't panic, everything's fine. And she's like, Are you sure about that? And he's like, Oh yes, nothing to worry about at all. <laughs> This is why so long ago I I compared Lockwood to Han Solo because it's like oh. they're in the Millennium Falcon, which is a piece of junk. And he's just always like, yeah, it's going to work. It's going to be great. We're going to get and then it never works. Uh, and then we get like a full on description of the ghost that Lucy is looking at. And it is creepy and gross, which I guess is a characteristic of wraiths in particular. This is a certain type of type two yes i also just love that we're starting off this children's book with this like really disgusting description yeah because it's exactly what kids want <laughs> right this is why like, you're reading if they're it, yeah. like Ugh, but no they're into it yeah definitely that's true but like we hear about the empty eye socket and and just the, yeah it's perfectly creepy and in a good ghost children's book way i guess i just needed to reiterate what we just said okay anyways <laughs> i like how it also has this like really weird way of moving where it's it says it it was moving as if it was still dangling on the gibbet Oof. uh and i was like oh wow that's like when i imagine that that is so eerie and yep. uncanny that's yep. really good detail and this one that's creeping up on her doesn't have any hands. Uh, no, that's the one creeping up on Lockwood. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. And uh, to me, that was like, oh, this is like a, a criminal, right? This is like someone who right, yep. stole or something. And so they had their hands cut off before they were killed. Which we find out is correct. This is where they were executing, quote unquote, criminals. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and then Lucy describes Lockwood because, and we had this nice reminder that Lockwood is very cool. <laughs> right. There's a mention here that Lockwood has a new coat. It's It talks about like how he's all flustered and stuff. And then it says that he's mainly flustered due to the claw marks on his nice new coat. And I was like, Lockwood just buys big coats. Um, maybe yep. the coat used to be his dad's, but now he's like... This is a style choice. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but yeah, then Lucy says, I stole a quick side long glance at him. He was standing with his sword held ready, tall, slim, as nonchalant as ever, watching the slow approach of the second visitor. The lantern light played on his thin, pale face, catching the elegant outline of his nose. Yeah. And she goes on for a paragraph and, of course, talks about his... Current smile is the one that he reserves for dangerous situations. So, still cataloging. <laughs> yeah, this is not the like disgusting horse mop of hair 
slappable face yeah. that George has. Uniquely slappable. <laughs> <laughs> or the way that she'll describe someone later as like their face could be used as a like way to do agriculture and things oh, like that. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> it's like Lockwood is perfect at all times and always. Everyone else is ugly. Lockwood is gorgeous. Yeah. The the wraith near Lucy kind of gets close to the circle and a bunch of stuff happens. It's, I guess she kind of tripped over George. But what George says is, watch it, Lucy. You just stepped on my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I feel like you would notice if you stepped on somebody's head. Like, it wouldn't. <laughs> like, heads are round. You know? It also like, means the, that she's like would have stepped into the hole. Well, is the implication that he's so deep in this hole that she used his head as a stepping stone? Yeah, I think so. How long has he been digging by himself? Oh, I would have quit and gone home so long ago. He says at one point that he had been digging for two hours. Like he's pretty fed up. And, and then we also just have a good, like we talk about how Lucy brought them to this spot because it's where she heard a voice. But, and we find out later that that was correct because the source is right there. Mm-hmm. Um, And George's research brought them to this, you know, gave, it's just a good setting up of their strengths and like who they are on the team and how they, yeah, they got there right away, which was easier for them because they're like a smaller team. So they're yeah a little bit more nimble than what we see that the Fitz crew is like huge in their approach. They would have found the source anywhere here because they were literally all over the place. So, yeah. Oh, and in the next paragraph describing a bunch of what George found out, I, it's just so very typical London to me that they built a playground on top of an old execution spot. <laughs> Where else are you going to do it? It's already a cleared space. Right. Like, didn't, wasn't it somewhere in London that they found the, like, the bones of a missing king in a parking lot? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, of course, they would just make a playground over an execution ground where there might be dead bodies. Yeah, it's true. And they're like, yeah, it's the same problem all over Europe. Like Paris is like literally built on the bones. Yeah. (laughs) Like, can you imagine the problem in Paris? It's got to be a complete nightmare. Oh, God. Yeah. With the catacombs under. Yeah. Let's not think about Paris. No. It's probably just been quarantined off. Everybody's out. There's it's it's literally a ghost town. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They Lucy has a good moment where she describes what she's hearing, like whispering the sound got louder and she had a clammy sensation of unnatural dread. And once or twice she would hear a disembodied voice muttering close by. And it's just nice to have a little creepy bit. It's building in the way that Stroud is so good at building. Yeah, things are like getting more and more creepy there closing in on both sides and they start to debate about like, what are we going to do? Like, what's the best way to get rid of these things? Yep. And Lockwood, <laughs> I feel like as the leader of the company is like, mm-hmm. just use your swords, use the cheapest, most affordable <laughs> tool that we have. And Lucy is like, I want to burn it with fire. <laughs> At one point though, Lockwood does say we all need to simmer down. Now, I don't know if you as an adult have ever been told to simmer down like a five-year-old. Yeah. 
Uh, but it's the exact opposite. Like you will, if somebody says that to you, that's the last thing that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's the most condescending, yeah, infuriating thing to be told. Um, yeah, simmer down. Like you, but like what you were saying when they're going over their options, it is also just a good way to recap all the ghost fighting weapons. Oh, that's true. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but that's exactly what yeah. it does. Yeah. But and the point, like you didn't even notice, yeah. means it was done well. Yeah. Yeah, because it's done in dialogue, and it, and they're debating mm-hmm. the effectiveness of all of them, which is like shop talk. It just fits really well. Lucy does have that good bit. Uh, I think it's a bit later though, where she's like, "God, it's so satisfying to use Greek fire outside." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I put down maybe she's just a pyromaniac. Uh, yeah. Which, yeah, we've <laughs> talked about this. I think last in book one, I think every girl goes through a, a, a phase where she just wants to burn everything. <laughs> well, she does it in the dagger in the desk, too. She in a school, she throws the yep. magnesium flare. Yep. Yep. Oh, this is why Lucy's my favorite. Let's just blow it all up. <laughs> there is a really cool visual as lockwood's ghost like gets up to the iron chains and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just kind of like leans himself against the i don't know what you like the field of you know protection that they have mm-hmm. uh and it's it pressed up gently against the barrier a fountain of other light burst skyward particles of plasm hissed and spat into the soil uh yeah that's good that's very creepy. Like that would freak me out to the point where I would probably step out of the iron circle in the other direction or something. Yeah, it it's uh it's creepy. Uh, oh, and when she f- throws the flare, like I was saying, she does also say, uh, because you can blow things up without fear of repercussion, which I think <laughs> is a nice shout out to book one. Yeah, true. Where they burn down a house. Yeah. Yeah. Where Lucy burns down. <laughs> yeah. And it cost them $60,000, pounds. Um, And then in order to introduce that there's even more ghosts, we talk about George again in a bad way. Oh, yeah. So it says, I underline this too. It was only then that I noticed George's mouth was hanging open in a grotesque and vacuous manner. That in itself is not unusual and wouldn't normally bother me. Also, his eyes were goggling against his spectacles as if someone were squeezing them from the inside. But this, too, is a familiar expression. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. But of course, he's also pointing to where there are more ghosts coming. Yeah, he's freaking out because they're getting surrounded. Yeah, turns out there's like six of them at least. And... They're surrounded and they're coming for them on every side. And then George is like, anyone got tea left in their thermos? My mouth's a little dry. (laughs) Love it. Before we jump into chapter two, though, we should talk about, I mean, chapter one, chapter one, book one, obviously, ended on a bit of a cliffhanger with Skull talking to Lucy. And we have not come back to that. And that is how every single book in the series is. Yeah. Like one ends on a cliffhanger and then the next one starts and we don't even acknowledge it for the first couple of chapters. We go straight into a job. Yeah. In medias res. Yeah. yeah. And then afterwards we come back to it. Yeah. I like that. 
<laughs> yeah. I like the consistency, how it's in every single book. To be fair, in the fifth book, the job that they start on is kind of related to the cliffhanger, but but they don't talk about it. I think that's very inviting to yeah. the first time reader. A kid just picks up this book like, oh, cool cover. There's a skull and just starts reading. And you, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it's not like, and as I said in the previous book, the skull talked to me and blah, 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 blah. Like that would really kind of be like, oh, I shouldn't read this. This like really invites you in and like throws all the rules up for you and like the situation and is interesting yep. all on its own. And then it folds in the previous story. And when I was a kid, I was much less worried about reading book series in order. Yeah. Uh, like I read them out of order all the time, which now I would never do. Oh I would God. never do it. Yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't care when I was a kid. So I, I can absolutely see this happening. Although I did just double check. And at least the American ones do have the number printed on the spine, which outside of children's books is very rare. That's true. Uh, because they sell more when they don't advertise that it's, you know, number three in a series. Somebody right. might just buy it. Um, yeah, so chapter two, Quill Kipps' team saves Lockwood and Co. And then they make a bet about which team is better. It's not quite what happens, but it was uh, one sentence. It was certainly one sentence. <laughs> I mean, it gets the point across. Um, the chapter art here is, of course, the stone that they dug up in chapter one, or that they mentioned in chapter one, that does end up being the source. But Lockwood Co. didn't know that. And we kind of start off with um, <laughs> with Lucy saying, now, we don't panic in tight situations. That's part of our training. And then, like, she's yelling at George. Yeah, but they're freaking out. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> she's like, this is all your fault. We're going to die because of your bad research skills. Yep. <laughs> and George is like, well, you are like, I went by the historical account. You can't blame me. And Lucy's all, I could give it a try. Lockwood's like, no one blames anyone on my team. We're doing a plan F I guess that's like the plan you're fucked. Like, yep. this, this is where we run away. A dignified retreat. Yeah. <laughs> dignified emergency retreat, to be fair. Uh, it's all really good, though. No, this is great energy. And uh, yeah, it takes the edge off of all the horror. Um, And then, like, at one point, Lucy's talking about wraiths and ghosts and stuff and that's and she gets out like that's why it's called the problem and i'm like hey it's our podcast uh but also we we get like a shout out to the problem which hasn't been mentioned yet yeah this is kind of asking the real questions like why are wraiths the way that they are and why you know instead of like looking like the way that they used to and stuff like that and like nobody knows the answers to any of these questions because we're too busy what i would think about running for our lives yeah that, yeah. that was the point I was going to make. Yes. Yeah. They're two. Yeah. Either running away or making money. Those are the two main things that people yeah. are doing. So they have this whole plan to run towards an elm tree. And I do not know why that would be safer than like they're like run to the elm tree and then we'll regroup basically because Lockwood gets to the elm and looks back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, what? What is safer at this tree than whatever? 
It doesn't matter. <clears throat> they move, but there they run. But Lucy trips, and then George trips over her, <laughs> and then Lockwood gets to the tree and is like, "Oh no!" and has to run back for them. Yeah, it's his really good. For once, his coat didn't sabotage him. He was able to get to the finish line. <laughs> yeah, maybe he did buy one that was slightly better fitting. <laughs> Yeah, the the corpse that comes up on her is like much more scary, I think. Yes. It's, she says she'll give it credit for originality, but uh, there's no like stubs of bone or anything. It just looks like a corpse before it's rotted. And it's like lots of descriptions about its fish-like skin and stuff. And it's just like, ugh. And it's like reaching out for her. It's pretty scary. Yeah, I don't like the fish-like skin. No, thank you. And she, because of the way that she's fallen, she can't get to any of her equipment. So she's trapped. Yeah. Um, but then someone shows up to save the day. So all's good, right? Yeah. She says, thanks, George. Um, and then he says, wasn't me. Look. And he points out into the the glade. And there are lots of flashlights moving through the park. Mm -hmm. My note here was live saved, but at what cost? At what cost? (laughs) And George really sums it up where he's like, or uh, Lucy says, Fitz agents. And George says, oh, great. I think I preferred the race. And then immediately it says it was worse than we thought. It wasn't any old bunch of Fitz agents. It was Kip's. When I watched the show, I read the books like pretty quick at work, just like uh, pretty quick. I mean, I listened to them at a normal rate in an audiobook, but I was not like paying deep attention or anything. And so my memory of watching the show was like, oh, they moved this Quill Kipps guy up quite a bit in the story to bring him into the first mystery, even though he wasn't there, because I had just completely forgotten about his appearance in the library scene. Because it was so like, I was like, this guy's a joke. Who cares about this whole right. thing? So I just wrote him off so completely that I didn't even remember he existed uh, and thought he was a book two character. Interesting. See, I did read the books really quickly at work because I listened to audiobooks at like 2.5 speed and I was doing work. So uh, what I missed completely f- through all five books is that Quill was an adult who had already lost his talents. <laughs> yeah. This is the way that Fitz rolls, right? That they have yeah. groups of children who are led by a young adult who used to have a talent. And like, this is the next stage in his career. I I got that by book four, he had lost his talents, but I thought it had happened in between three and four. Mm-hmm. And like his his story is such that that kind of works. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I'm an idiot, I guess. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> think that's fair. But Lucy does say here, she says being she's describing Quill Kipps for the first time reader again, being diplomatic. I'd say Kipps was a slightly built young man in his early 20s with close yeah. cut reddish hair. I missed that completely. I thought he was like, I thought he was about 18. Mm hmm. So, I don't know. I'm insane. But also, I I did write down some of that, I think, is because of how he treats Lockwood. Because Lockwood's like 16, 17 here, because a year has passed. And this twenty, this man in his 20s is so... Uh, like, He's a child. 
is treating Lockwood like like a lesser equal. Yeah. You know, like somebody on the same level as him who is just bad at his job. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. He's what? a petty child. He's a bully. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. I mean, Lucy goes on to describe him in a savage way to say that he's a pint-sized, pug-nosed, carrot-topped, inadequate, with a chip the size of Big Ben on his weedy shoulders, a sneer Mm -hmm. on legs, a malevolent buffoon. Now, to be fair, this is after he says, oh, sorry, is it Julie? I can never remember the girl's name. So I am good (laughs) with Lucy being savage here. She just completely unloads on him. Yeah, But yeah, I did underline all of that and then just say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Rip him to shreds. He's got plastic jewels on his sword. I mean, he's just an idiot. I mean, he's so, again, like I talked about this when we got Kips the first time that like the way that Stroud has these uh, characters who are kind of like a, a, why can't I think of the word? When it's like the opposite number to Lockwood. There's no potency to him. You know what I mean? Like he's characterized in such a buffoonish way from his behavior and his physical description and everything. It doesn't feel like he's a threat. And that kind of makes him winning here and like getting things way worse. It hurts much worse. I'm like reading this. I was so upset that they didn't get even even one little dig in, really. Yeah. Ugh, it sucks. Yeah. Um, but on the next page, we get Lucy describing Cat Godwin. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Which my note was just all caps sigh. <laughs> I just okay. So obviously, we meet the one other girl in this book. Uh, I guess to be fair, uh, Penelope Fitz makes an appearance, but whatever uh this is the one other like real character that we have who is a girl and she is immediately described as blonde slim and pouty which would have given me three good reasons to dislike her if she'd been a sweet lass who spent her free time tending sick hedgehogs (laughs) (sighs) which like okay the hedgehogs bit is good (laughs) that's funny but I, I just, it, why hate people based on physical descriptions? Why, why blonde? What, like, he's describing the popular girls, quote unquote, and saying that you should just hate them. Yeah. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Yeah. Don't, I hate, I hate that so much. And then, and then he immediately describes her as being dumb. By saying jokes made her irritable as if she sensed something was going on around her that she couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. So she's a dumb blonde. Which right. great. You know? Although, I mean, that is a really good line. <laughs> like, he does it. It's bad and he does it so well. Yeah. I just, if they'd cut out her, like, hating her for her physical description at the beginning... I think a lot of this would be better because I've hated women before. Some of them suck. You know, the same way that some men suck. Some people just suck. Yeah. Her. Yeah. It's not about her character for Lucy. It's not about her looks. It's not about like, why? Yeah. Why have this tall, beautiful blonde and this, you know, uh, he kind of describes Lucy as kind of shorter and stockier. Mm hmm. With with brown hair, and it's like, why do this? 
it's interesting too because he describes or i say he because i'm ascribing it to stroud but like lucy's yes, voice that, that's yes when when she describes like barnes or kipps or george when she's being disparaging they are all mm-hmm. like characterized in the most ugly physically ugly terms and then like cat is being described here as like beautiful and that's what she Mm -hmm. doesn't like yeah but that's men and women it's different no i get it and but she like she has no awareness that there's like any jealousy or inadequacy and i'm thinking too about like later when we get descriptions of holly it's the same kind of thing yeah uh where it's never like, oh, I, I hate this woman because she's like looks like an old witch crone or like blah, 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 blah. It's women are just never described that way in these books by Lucy. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like she yeah. weaponizes looks against men and then hates women because they aren't ugly. And like, again, I these are very real thoughts that a 15, 16 year old girl would have, especially one who feels inadequate, which we do get at the end of this paragraph where she says, um, you know, like she always happens to see cat after a bad job. That's made her look gross. Right. Uh, paraphrasing. Right. And I get that, but it's the way Stroud writes it though, doesn't work. And it is still a choice that he is making, you Mm. know, like he, could have cut all that out and just said, yeah, Cat, w- Cat Godwin is kind of dumb and and a bit of a bitch. You know, and we could have hated her for that. Yeah, or or she's like, I've always been a little scared of Cat because I feel like I never measure up. You know, which would be like maybe more honest. I don't know if that's too honest and self-aware for No, like Lucy. I... I I get Lucy not thinking that straight out. I yeah. do. But it's, I'm not saying that anything in here is necessarily r- wrong. I'm saying it's not done well. And it is still a choice that a man decided to make about teenage girls. Mm-hmm. You know, even if teenage girls out there are women remembering being teenage girls or whatever, um, if think that it's something that they would have felt or thought. It didn't need to be here. It doesn't actually make any difference to the story. She could have just been like, oh, she's another listener, and therefore I hate her. And it would have had the exact same thing. Yeah, because I think part of the point of everything that we're going to get here with Kips's team in this chapter is to establish that they, uh, the word I was trying to remember earlier was foil. That these are oh, like. Oh, I was thinking. I literally thought that, but I was like, no, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. Yeah, they're kind of like foils for each of the characters. They're the opposite. Absolutely. Yeah. So like Kips is the anti-Lockwood and Kat is the anti-Lucy. Yes, exactly. I think I literally wrote, like I wrote down foils, but I think I did also write down anti-Summer. And we, and just to like, because I'm sure that people listening have like, you know, like the Lock Nation listeners that we have would have, you know, listened to Jonathan Stroud's ClusterCon stuff where he specifically talks about how Kips is not a foil. Like, I'm aware of that when I'm saying this, but like, just like the way that it's set up right now, because he considers Kips to be like a full character who has like an arc and a journey and 
So he's right, not but... merely a tool of being a foil for Lockwood. But his but origin book, here he is. is. Yeah, yeah. Like Kipps goes on to have a full story yeah. and have a really good, like uh, I've described before that I was spoiled for the fact that Kipps becomes a part of the team in the later books. Mm -hmm. But when you're, and then I was reading book two and I was like, man, I must have misunderstood that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he is such an asshole. In it this seems book. impossible, yeah. So it is a good story that he has and a good arc. But right, I do think in this book, and in this chapter, especially the way that he sets up Kat, uh, Kips, and Bobby, it is they are the anti Lockwood and Co. I don't know. Some people out there might disagree with me being angry about this, but I'd be if if Lucy ever had one nice thing to say about another girl that she meets, it might be a, a little bit more understandable. But I don't. I don't think we ever get one mm -hmm. until the end of book three and into book four when. She and Holly do finally become friends. I'm glad that in the show they made Kat not this like bimbo blonde character, but instead was like, actually, she's a very confident, is probably the brains behind the team. They pair her up with Lockwood as well. She like seems to be the most formidable fighter on the team. And she's like yeah. more strategically minded. Uh, yeah, she seems like very composed in the show. And then they've also, like, in the show, subtracted a lot of Lucy's animosity, like, irrational animosity. Yeah, they have one bit where, like, when they're sort of facing off against the Gibbs team in the mausoleum or whatever we decided that building was, <laughs> right. um, where she walks in and just says, hey, cat," and does not say hello to anybody else <laughs> on Gibbs' team. And I actually kind of liked that. Because it was sort of showing, like, yeah, like, the the solidarity uh, between women who are surrounded by men all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, listener solidarity and stuff like that. Yeah. I do also want to point out that, obviously, we are talking a lot about, like, gender as a binary here. But that's, like, because that's how it's written in the books. Right. And it never comes up otherwise. Uh, obviously, that's not the reality of the world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the next bit is when Kip sort of explains the actual thing that's going on and we get introduced to Bobby and basically Lockwood and Co. just get laughed at a lot. Yeah, it's just like a huge crushing loss all around in every way that yeah. it could be. And this is where like Bobby's set up as George's foil. Yeah, because he's done research that... Uh, George didn't think to do at the local library. So it had mm -hmm. local records. Hey, lots and lots of people died at this site. It was, it was like what you said with the King being under a parking lot. Like they dug up the yeah. grave when they were making the road bigger and they, and so the body's not even here. The focus is on the, uh, the stone that was like the base of the place where everybody was executed. Yeah. And as soon as Bobby mentions the stone, all Lockwood and Co. is like, oh, no. And they kind of have to admit, yeah, we, we did find a stone. And that's where I wrote just oof. Yeah. Like, it's such, it's so crushing here. You can imagine that, like, they had been digging for two hours. They probably threw that stone out of the way in the first five minutes. Yep. And it was, like, the thing. Uh, and then we find out, of course, that Kips is taking the source and therefore the commission. Yeah. 
Lucy does give it to Cat here, though. She said, like, if you found it, Cat Godwin said, how come you haven't sealed it? Why are all the ghosts still running around? This, despite her chin and hairstyle, was a fair point. Oh, yeah, it is Cat who is described as having a chin sharp enough to... Yeah, plant things uh, if she fell plant down. Plant things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that one, that one is weird enough that it doesn't bother me. <laughs> it's, it's, weird. it's kind of funny. <laughs> and he goes into such detail about it. And then we have the origins of the bet, which in the book is George. I'd completely forgotten about that. Yeah, I think George is really wounded by... Bobby Vernon by Bobby Vernon yeah competence yeah and all the work that he put in for like no good use you know while everybody Mm -hmm, was like mm -hmm. yelling at him like why haven't you gotten to the source yet but it also just really fits this is George's book you know yeah and it's about him not feeling like part of the team and then by the end of course getting into the like really being with the team so I don't know it just makes sense to me to have George be the one one who does it the inciting incident as it were that's true yeah that's a really good like i do like it in the show also with because they made it more about lockwood being um fucked up oh yeah it's his death wish thing that was like really causing the problem in that second so I, i i like the use of it there yeah i i also like here we kind of passed over it but there's like not just these three agents here there's like an enormous oh, yes. force of people. Enor- yeah. And they have all kinds of fancy tools that Lockwood and Co. does not have. And I think it just points out like how the rich get richer. You know, they like are able to scoop yep. up all kinds of commissions <clears throat> because they just have the resources to show up and brute force. And and I think that's like really important. And it even is part of the bet because Lockwood's like, hey, in a fair fight, we would annihilate you guys. Well, it's really important for the rest of the book that they start off so antagonistically, but also with the idea that like we will meet again and we will prove, you know, who is better. So then I love how just before they walk away, Lucy is like, or the name's Lucy. Cause it was like five pages back. (laughs) I just couldn't remember her name. So by this point, no one cares. And so she, She just says that and then leaves. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what are you even talking about? And then I love, I love George's line where he says, I had to speak out. Sorry. It was either that or punch him. And I've got sensitive hands. (laughs) (laughs) And then all three of them are totally on board with the bet. Also different than the show. Because Lockwood's like, no need to apologize. And Lucy says, if we can't beat Kips's gang in a fair fight, we may as well give up now. Yeah, but the stakes are also... Not quite the same because in the show, the, yeah, they're like, we will never work in this town again. Yeah. Uh, Which is like, especially for Lucy in the show is like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like that would ruin my life. Uh, That's true. But I, I talked about this in the show, but I thought like the two high stakes in the show made it so that there was no stakes because Uh, obviously they're going to win that. Yeah. Because Lockwood and Co. could survive putting in an ad that says the Kips team is the best team, but they couldn't survive shutting down, obviously. In the book, it's a clever condition on Lockwood's part to have like a certified Fitz leader say about his little agency, they're better than us. 
Like that would be such a huge coup to have in the in the paper. It's a really smart thing to ask for. That's actually a very good point. I never thought about that before. But yeah, it's good. Good marketing. Exactly. Yeah, it would be people would just be like, whoa, I just I can't get over it. That 20 year old Kips would be like, yeah, let's we'll have a competition to see who's better. And then we'll tell everyone because I am a child. I feel like the best thing about getting out of being a teenager is suddenly realizing how all that teenage shit didn't matter. Yeah. And Kips is like, no, I'm clinging to it. I need it. Which actually, now that I say it like that, completely makes sense. Because, you know, he lost his powers. He lost his, like, importance. So so you would. that It makes sense. There's all kinds of little clues here, too, in this chapter that go, that talk about that and his ego and his place in the organization. Because there's, like, at one point, a little eight-year-old, like, runs up to the team and is like, yeah. sir, yes, sir, we found a nexus, sir. It's a psychical necklace, you know, necklace, nexus, yeah. sir. And the, there's a lot of like, when Bobby comes up, he's like, sir, yes, sir, Mr. Kipps. It's like, you can tell that he, that's not like a Fitz thing, I feel like. I feel like that's a Kipps thing. So I ju- that's just overcompensating to be like, treat me like an admiral, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, it's all he's got too like his whole personality has been being a Fitz agent and it's like he's drying up and he I don't think he knows who he is as a person yeah agreed and it's a shame that we don't really get into that in this book we we do later obviously but in this one he is strictly like the idiot Mm -hmm. but I think it would be more interesting to have more of it here we don't really start it until I guess we get a little bit in book three, but then book four is very much Kip's realizing that he's useless. (laughs) You know, even though they're like very antagonistic at the end of this thing, the truth is that the teams worked together and they that's true. They couldn't work it out, but they did save Lockwood and co. And it's going to be a journey told them where the source was right so there was like real cooperation here but the two teams need to like arc into actually cooperating and speaking we've talked so much about the show and this whole section is like five minutes in the show that's recounted kind of second hand to lucy yes in a way that i thought it's really 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 good in the show like it's so good. absolutely yeah they just uh, uh, Cameron putting the disdain in his voice. Like, <laughs> it's so... I've, I talked about that when we were there. It's my favorite. I love it so much. I was just like, you just want to watch him die. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, for not being able to afford to do this scene, they made it work so well. Yeah. And now we have indeed talked for over an hour. Oh, no. <laughs> We did it. Hopefully in editing, it won't be that. Yeah, it won't. We did it. So next time we will talk about probably one half of part two, The Unexpected Grave. I hate when I find unexpected graves. It's funny because we brought that up like twice now about unexpected graves in London. So it is a thing. Yeah. Did you have a best worst joke? Is the is the cat stuff the worst joke? No, well, I guess not. Um, yes, yeah, obviously, 
I feel all sorts of ways about that. I just hate, I don't know, whatever. I think I've made my feelings clear and I'm going to uh, talk about it more later. So that'll be fun for everyone that I'm not going to let it go. Um, <laughs> the best joke, I do love basically a lot of what George says. You know, the it was either that or punch him and I've got sensitive hands. I do love that. It's when Lucy says, you know, when George says, you can't blame me. And then Lucy says, I could give it a try because I can just hear that. I, it's so good. It, I love that line so much. And it's funny and it's great. And they're just sniping at each other. That's my favorite. What about you? We didn't talk about Lucy's continued savagery to the Kips team. I, I liked the description we get of Bobby Vernon. It says Vernon was very short and possibly also very young, though there was something oddly middle-aged about him. So I wouldn't have been surprised if it turned out he was secretly a 50-year-old man. But even compared to his leader, who was diminutive, Vernon was small. Standing next to Kipps, his head came up to his shoulders. Standing next to Godwin, he came up to her chest. She has so much contempt for them, though. It's, It's really like... It's not appropriate, but it's so much fun to read it. It's like, wow. Yeah, like I said, even some of the cat stuff, I did laugh. So what can I say? I didn't really have a punk rock here. Oh, you know what? I just I just thought of one Lucy being a pyromaniac, as per usual. <laughs> yeah, God, that's so the only satisfying thing I to of. set off bombs. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's such, they just take such a big loss here. It's There's nothing cool or punk rock about it. Yeah. And I just, I just remembered, you know, Lucy near the end of book one saying, oh, the comforting feeling of having a bomb in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I didn't get that line right. But so if you uh, disagree with anything I had to say about women hating women, please reach out to us on Twitter at Lockwood Podcast. Or you can reach out to me personally on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. You can send your angry emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com, or you can go to the contact page down at the bottom of our homepage, hollowedgroundmedia.com slash contact. And remember to completely miss the source on your next haunting. <laughs> <laughs>